Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Tonight on Revolt Black News Weekly. Everything that Black Lives Matter was supposed to be standing for, none of the money went to that. Tracing the Black Lives Matter money trail two years after the vicious murder of George Floyd. Allegations of financial misconduct plagued the movement's founders. Then, confronting a crisis in black men's mental health, can our brothers escape the stigmas and feel safe to say, I'm not okay? We get into it. The entire black community does it. It's time for it to stop. Plus, how the baby formula shortage has put black women and infants in a state of emergency. First of all, I would like to respectfully ask them to shut up. And Zendaya's influence verified. Why she and Mary J are among Time Magazine's Century Club. Ooh, so, ooh, wow, that just hit me hard just now. Then Doja's summer tour catnipped. Why she's sitting quiet for a while. And Rocky by Baby News, we got the dish on Rihanna and ASAP's new bundle of joy. And will justice for Nipsey finally happen? We have the details as the Black News Revolution starts right now. Welcome to the show. I'm Naima Abdullahi. This week marks the two-year anniversary of George Floyd's tragic murder by Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. His senseless killing reignited the Black Lives Matter movement and inspired millions to demonstrate and donate. Now, BLM is facing serious allegations of financial misconduct as its leaders' feet are being held to the fire. The cost of BLM is tonight's top story. New released tax filings show exactly how Black Lives Matter spent their donation money. Our friends yeah. over at Black Lives Matter are up against it. Yeah. The question is, are they our friends? The largest social justice movement under fire. The co-founder of the group, Patrice Cullors, has spent hundreds of thousands of dollars paying her brother to be some sort of security guard. After several watchdog groups allege BLM Global founder Patrice Cullors misappropriated over $40 million in charitable funds. Many of the donors felt like giving the money to Black Lives Matter Global Network was the same thing as giving the money just to black people or the, or the movement overall. I think, you know, um, that white guilt, it, it allowed them to, 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 to give some money in place of white guilt. A lot of people sent their hard-earned money to BLM thinking that they were uh, an organization that was sincere. And clearly over the last two years, that's proven not to be the case. It looks like everything that Black Lives Matter was supposed to be standing for during the years of 2020 and 2021 when these protests were happening, none of the money went to that. During this financial period, the charity reports that it brought in $76 million $872,002 in contributions. So this is not a small amount of money by any means. A tax audit points colors as the sole board member of BLM Global making lavish personal purchases. This is a beautiful idea 
to build a million dollar house just for people in the movement. But the way it was done in secret and has come out through an investigation, that's not a beautiful thing at all. That neighborhood is, I believe, 90% white and 1% black. And the $6 million home is in a neighborhood that's a 5% white and 4% black. They're claiming we had to buy this mansion so that black people could feel safe in a rich white neighborhood. Okay, I, I, but how does that fit Black Lives Matter, right? A question that comes on the heels of the two-year anniversary of the movement's most active mission. One of the things that was at top of mind was police accountability, an end to police brutality, a number of different proposals for how to make sure that police would not be able to get away with doing what they did to George Floyd and what they do to other people who are not caught on cameras. Back in 2020, the world witnessed protesters hitting the ground to support ending police brutality and the demands to relocate police funds. The one thing that really got me was when I saw some of the other groups who were deserving of grants, like the Trayvon Martin Foundation, where all of this really started. They only got $200,000. As millions poured in, the community and critics watched to see if it would impact who it mattered to the most. Black Lives Matter cannot tell us one thing that they've done to help black people at a grassroots level. And I think that's tragic. With news of another tragedy hitting close to home, the community is asking, where is that same support? We put ourselves on the line publicly and so you can't have the benefits accrue privately. It has to be very transparent. Nothing has stopped, nothing has finished. Looking at all of the cases, how you see a monster go into a grocery store in Buffalo, New York, and cold-bloodedly kill elderly Black women and children, it's disgusting. Joining me to break this down are political strategist and civil rights activist Alicia Garza, Tom Anderson of the National Legal and Policy Center, and in-studio Marquina Novembre, one of the many activists that were on the ground during the movement. Now, we also want to mention, we extended multiple invites to Patrice Cullors and the new chair members of the BLM Global, but they both declined our invitation, so we're going to continue having this discussion. Thank you all for joining us today. Let's get right into it. Uh, Alicia, as one of the original members, you know, you do mention 2013 and Trayvon Martin, you know, what started off as, you know, a hashtag and, and a word that connected people who felt some type of way, especially after that happened. At what point did funding become a need? You know, when we started Black Lives Matter Global Network, there wasn't funding. And actually our initial contributors were people like Prince, or The weekend, you know, Black entertainers and celebrities who also wanted to use their platforms to make sure that they were addressing critical issues that were impacting their communities. There was a lot of hesitancy, right, around uh, resources. And one of the things that was really important to me, uh, as well as to Opal and Patrice, was making sure that uh, that this movement had the resources that it needed to be able to proceed. However, uh, resources were not the most uh, critical thing that was being focused on. Uh, and I think what we saw in 2020 was that there were a lot of resources that were moving around, not just to Black Lives Matter, but to civil rights organizations across the country. 
And you know what I hope for in this moment is that there is a continued transparency and accountability around resources and fundraising. Let's really unpack the controversy that comes with this. You know, Tom, you're hearing the original um, intent, but now we're seeing the reports of alleged misappropriation of the funds. Uh, where did accountability fall short, do you think? Well, of course, it's leadership. And, and I'll say after listening to Ms. Garza speak just now, I, I have to say that BLM, they were missing her leadership during this pivotal time when they had the resources, clearly, right? Um, so that's the first thing I would say after listening to what she just said. They, they lack leadership. And the first thing that I noticed when looking into this was, you know, anytime you have something like a nonprofit that represents a larger international movement, you don't ever want to do something that even appears to be improper, right? And so the best way to do that is to create a board that's independent. That never happened. And so what, so what we're seeing here is basically almost like a, a, a train wreck. BLM didn't have the proper leadership. It had one person, from what we can tell, signing the checks, making all of the executive decisions. And this one person, once about $70 million came into their bank accounts, decided who would get what on their own. And, and Marquina, you know, he's saying people on the ground. Yeah. You were on the ground. You were yes. partaking in, you know, so many of the protests. What have you seen in the movement, um, in the things that people were marching for? So when I look at these different types of things that's going on, um, on the business end of the movement, mm -hmm. I get wildly confused because it doesn't translate to what I see on the ground when we're doing the work. We don't have, we don't have the resources, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's my biggest question when I hear all these numbers going around as well. Where is it going? Because the people on the ground are in need. And if we had it, we would do something. So when it mm. comes to the movement right here in Atlanta, Georgia, where mm. we have Jimmy Atchison, who was murdered by an Atlanta police officer, we have Trayvon Martin, who was murdered. We have countless names who have been murdered all around this world and in Atlanta, Georgia. Mm. And their families deserve justice. Their families are the first people who should be getting the calls when these funds are being donated at such a massive and how you feel is how so many other people feel. Alicia, let me get a final word from you, two sentences as we wrap up this discussion and as you've heard two other people also. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada -ba -ba -ba. At participating McDonald's. Share their views. Well, one thing I want to say is that it is important for us to keep pursuing justice at every stage in every single way possible. There is not just one way to do that. There's a number of ways in which we have to pursue change. And I'm really proud of the ways that we are doing that. And I'm really honored to be on this in this conversation with you all. The other thing I want to say here is that, you know, organizations and movements um, are learning as they go. Tom, Alicia, and Marquina, thank you all for joining us today. There's more Black News Weekly ahead. When we come back, our special correspondent, Rochelle Ritchie, reports on the Black men's mental health crisis when we return. Welcome back, everyone. We are now turning our attention to the U.S. baby formula shortage. Product recalls and a factory shutdown at the nation's largest formula manufacturer have left shelves empty for months. 
We investigate the current state of the formula crisis and why black mothers and families are especially vulnerable. Families are feeling shame, they're feeling like they failed, they're feeling guilty, um, and, all, and all of that is undue. In Baltimore, mother and reproductive justice advocate Anna Rodney says scenes like these are all too common. In February, a nationwide shortage of formula that began in the pandemic grew far worse after safety recalls and a factory shutdown from the FDA at the country's largest infant formula producer, Abbott Nutrition. It absolutely wiped out the stockpiles that any family might have already had. That formula had to go back or go in the trash. Right now, our families are starting to get desperate, if I'm being honest. Also, unfortunately, there are families who are starting to dilute formula and um, also lean on family recipes, uh, recipes um, that, you know, grandma used to use, uh, caramel milk, um, carnation milk, and things like that. Um, the issue with that is that the nutritional basis for those homemade recipes um, are really not enough. Through her organization, Mom Cares, Rodney supports black mothers facing financial stressors and high-risk births. She says families using the federal Women, Infants, and Children program, or WIC, were initially denied substitutes when designated formula brands were no longer available. Only in the last week or so are we starting to hear that that is changing, and I think that that's very unfortunate um, because we have been aware that this is affecting families for quite some time. In the U.S., black mothers use formula at disproportionately higher rates due in part to systemic policy and economic factors that limit their choices. Those same factors, says Rodney, are what's behind the long delay of assistance in the formula crisis. We've seen it time and time again in this country in which um, the right kind of person needs to ask for help or be affected before um, help is dispatched. But families can soon breathe a sigh of relief, says White House National Economic Council Deputy Director Samira Fazili. The president announced that he was going to authorize the use of um, Department of Defense systems to, um, to fly in formula. Um, from abroad. We announced that on Wednesday of last week and our first flight ended by Sunday. And while dramatic pictures of Operation Fly Formula may signal the end of the shortage, some feel it also highlights that we've fallen short in protecting those who care for our country's most vulnerable. If we are in the business of supporting mothers, we need to support all mothers. We all have one and we need to make sure that we're valuing them and supporting them and not placing blame when this is clearly not, the, not an issue um, to lay at the feet of mothers. With us now, we have Chanel Andrews, lactation consultant and owner of Hey Mama Lactation and Perinatal Care, Yolette Perry, a communications and technology coordinator and mother of 19-month-old Azai, and Anna Rodney, mother of 13-month-old Asher and CEO of Mom Cares, an organization that provides free postpartum doula services to black moms. Ladies, what are some of the resources for black mothers and families, and what are some of the consequences when we look at this uh, formula shortage? Uh, uh, Anna, I want to start with you. Um, so you definitely should be leaning on your pediatrician for alternatives. Um, there are also organizations locally that are helping people get to uh, milk banks and formula um, that is being donated. So the consequences currently are that babies are um, missing out on vital nutrition. Um, and we are going to be looking at the fallout from that 
for years to come. Now, because of the uh, formula shortage, there's now a lot of conversation about breastfeeding. Black mothers are breastfeeding less often than other ethnic groups. Chanel, what are some of the reasons mothers choose not to breastfeed? So I think it's very important that we start with the most obvious reason, right? because they don't want to. And, you know, a lot of people don't like to, you know, hear that as an answer, right? You know, they want to have some other real big reason behind it. But body autonomy, my body, my choice is very important. There are some people who just choose um, not to breastfeed. You know, that is the power of having a choice and being able to make an informed choice. Not to mention the hypersexualization of the Black body. You know, um, breasts are no longer just for feeding babies. The first thing that it's seen as it is, it is sexual. It is something that we should be ashamed of, something that we should hide. And then also, you know, we can't discount the aggressive marketing of formula in the Black community, which is a conversation that that needs to be had. Chanel, let's stay on that. Formula industries have benefited from targeting Black mothers dating back to the 1940s. The quadruplets, I'm sure you guys have seen that image, that were branded the face of pet milk. Yalette, you are a mother who chose to breastfeed exclusively. Uh, what type of support did you have and what was that experience like for you? Yeah, so for me and my son Azai, it for me it was a no-brainer, honestly. You know, I come from a mother who breastfed, and for me, quite honestly, I just don't trust a lot of the products that are out. You know, sometimes they say organic and you don't know what's in these things. So I was able to stay home, have a work from home job during the pandemic, which made it, you know, a privilege to be able to exclusively breastfeed. That also made me make sure that, you know, I was eating, you know, the proper the proper foods to make sure that my son was able to get everything that he needed since it was exclusively just for me. Absolutely. And, you know, there with this conversation of formula shortage, it's bringing up um, a lot of different layers. There's a lot of people who are, you know, quote unquote, mom shaming uh, women. Uh, it's happening in response to the formula recalls that led to this shortage especially towards black mothers. Anna, how do you respond to those who say these women should just breastfeed? It's natural. It's free. This formula, it's not an emergency. So to that, I would like to respectfully ask them to shut up. Blaming the black woman and blaming the black body for our issues is not something that's new, right? You look at initiation rates and support that you're finding in hospitals. A Black woman in a hospital is more likely to get a WIC application or a WIC form than to be able to have access to that lactation consultant. So we really need to take the blame off of the women and, and realize what it is. This is another part of institutionalized racism that is rearing its ugly head. We talked earlier about how this problem has been persisting for months and only now are we starting to take action? Yolette, let me follow up with you. Were there moms in your circle who didn't choose to breastfeed? Uh, and what were those conversations like? We go through a lot of body shaming, you know, this whole snapback mentality, you know, it's not about once the baby comes out of your body, it's more so about making sure your body looks good than making sure your child is, you know, properly nourished sometimes. Everyone kind of leaning on, you know, the hearsay of what was said in the community and, you know, the 
backlash with the vaccine. It was so many things that were happening at once. I think a lot of women kind of retreated and went into this space where a safe space for them, which was, you know, going to formula. Yolette, Chanel, and Anna, we've run out of time. Uh, thank you all for sharing your personal story of exactly how this formula shortage impacts the Black community, Black women, and where we go from here. Thank you all for uh, joining this conversation. Carnival, Lagos Island Star. That was Nigerian superstar Davido giving the baby a tour of his homeland during the Charlotte rapper's recent visit to Africa. Now the pair were in Lagos to shoot a music video and then were met with a huge crowd that went after the hip hop artist's motorcade. He said, being in Nigeria felt like home with all the love that he received. And that's just one of our global headlines as we explore being black all over the world. We begin in Nigeria. The trend-setting sounds of a Nigerian artist is making historic waves on the hip-hop charts. Atlanta's very own future is giving flowers to musician Thames, who he featured and sampled on his latest album. The track, Wait For You, debuted at number one, making Thames... Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The first Nigerian artist in history to have a number one debut on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. Next up, we head to Somalia, which recently hosted its long overdue presidential election with candidate and former Somali leader Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud winning the presidency. The capital, Mogadishu, was on security lockdown while he was immediately sworn in. The ballot was limited and decided by 328 Somali legislators. It was a closed election from the public for security reasons. Shortly after the election, President Joe Biden approved deploying American troops to the East African nation, which reestablishes U.S. military presence in the country, reversing a Trump-era decision. This comes after growing concerns of the terrorist organization Al-Shabaab. The organization linked to Al-Qaeda continues to threaten the Somali government. And finally, we shift our attention to Haiti. A recent New York Times investigation shows how Haiti has experienced reparations in reverse. After the Haitian Revolution led the nation to gain independence from France, France came back to demand reparations from the people they enslaved to officially buy off their freedom or be prepared for war. According to research, this led to a domino effect of a debt that impacts Haiti to this day, considered the greatest heist in history. It's also become one of the poorest nations in the world and currently faces a humanitarian crisis. And one more headline here in the States as the murder trial for Eric Holder, the gunman accused of shooting Nipsey Hussle, is expected to begin June 2nd. And we'll be all over the trial once it begins. Okay, make sure you stay with us. There is more Revolt Black News Weekly when we come back. How I know I had mental health problems was I pulled the trigger. You actually pulled the trigger? Yeah, I pulled the trigger. Where'd you, where'd you shoot? In my chest. Didn't feel a thing from my heart and didn't feel a thing though, so I wasn't going through any pain. That's Lil Wayne getting real about his struggle with mental health with Emmanuel Acho, author of Uncomfortable Conversations. Welcome back, I'm special correspondent Rochelle Ritchie. And as we wrap up Mental Health Awareness Month, we wanted to have a conversation about our brothers facing the stigmas when admitting they are not okay. 
and need help. I'm writing my book and it's like exposing my life and so many things that people don't know about me. That was the only time in my life that I ever considered suicide. A very candid Will Smith opening up. They really didn't even know how to feel. In therapy, I learned how traumatic that was for me. I had a lot of anger. Former rapper Joe Budden addresses his pain. Was that a, a moment that came from therapy? Yeah, just realizing that, oh my goodness, these young men coming from these, they're just in pain. You got to survive. So you go into survival mode. And when you go into survival mode, what happened? Mm -hmm. Shut down. Jay-Z getting candid. These are the faces depicted in black pop culture about men seeking help from within. There's levels to depression. Black people, from my experience, they have a unique engagement with depression, right? We have lived through some tough times. There are varying degrees and conditions as it relates to, you know, mental health, bipolar, schizophrenia, depression, anxiety, uh, identity issues, imposter syndrome. I mean, there's just a range of conditions. We have to have like that baseline understanding to best understand like where we are in the, the mental health spectrum to get the appropriate care and support that we need. Shattering the stigma and what some experts call a generational shame. So let me be clear, black men have always opened up to somebody. The stigma, the fear of unknown is talking with someone. We call it the white coat syndrome, right? We just don't trust healthcare or any type of authority. Anytime we have to go speak with somebody and they taking notes, <laughs> we already got pushback, right? And opening the wound to a deeper rooted issue. You know, most bullies bully. There was a lot of fights in our neighborhood that started with, what you looking at? And then you realize, you're in a space where you're hurting and you think I see you, so you don't want me to look at you. You don't want me to see your pain. So you put on this shell of this tough person that's really willing to fight me and possibly kill me because I looked at you. Social media shapes uh, masculinity and in, in, in black mental health uh, in a number of ways. Black men do not get emotional in public. Michael Jordan cried once and it's a meme. I think from a societal standpoint that the world is committed to sort of diminishing the black man right now. Historically, it's always been like that. We need more emotion. We need more men crying with our boys. The real strength in masculinity is not being strong until you bring yourself into the ground. The real strength is being strong and uh, getting the help and support that you need. And once you do that, helping others uh, do that as well. Joining me for more on this is America's psychologist, Dr. Jeff Gadir, also known as Dr. Jeff, CEO and co-founder of Equity, Quentin Vinny, and YouTube influencer, Green Gorilla. Welcome, gentlemen, to the show. So excited to have you here with us. Dr. Jeff, I want to start with you. What societal pressures have influenced black masculinity, and how has that impacted their mental health? Well, I think one of the major things is uh, the way that we see that people of color, especially black men, are treated in this particular society, uh, where they feel that at any time, anything can be taken away from them. Uh, therefore, they do have to put up a front, if you will, or even psychologically have a construct uh, where they can maintain uh, their integrity. And what is sad about that is uh, quite often uh, it goes into a, a place that even is unhealthy for them in that they cannot 
be in touch with some of the feelings and the catharsis of the pain that they actually go through each and every day being black men in America. And so, you know, seeing all of this violence and brutality, it, it, it reignites the triggers that many of us haven't even started the process of healing from and then not having an outlet, um, a healthy outlet to really be able to figure out and find you know, meaning in our lives and, and our purpose in being here on this planet, I think it, it, it continues to perpetuate this, uh, this negative idea of, uh, of, of what masculinity means, uh, especially to be black in America. How has black men's masculinity been affected by their own community? If we don't display stoicism or act as if we have it all together, in other words, if we show any signs of vulnerability or pain, we get called betas, we get called p lames, punks, bitch-ass and whiners. As soon as we engage in self-expression and give voice to our desires, our politics, or our problems, we get typecast as problematic and pathological. And black men do this. We call each other punks and, and betas. Black women do this, okay? The entire black community does it. It's time for it to stop. Our culture does not care about black men's health and well-being, even black men themselves. So we often revel in our own death and we have no problem watching us sink into the depths of nihilism. You know, and as we do, they place the blame squarely on our shoulders. And basically they say men don't need help. Men don't get depressed, not real men anyway. So man up, you know, you don't need assistance or love or care or empathy, just man up, okay? All of what he was describing was me at some point. I also didn't have a father figure in my life growing up. And so I had to learn what black masculinity meant by my environment. And my environment was perpetuated by poverty, crime, violence, dilapidation, helplessness, desperation. And so we were operating out of these places. And as I grew up, as I started to address my traumas, as I started to recognize that my existence wasn't just existence, it was traumatic. Then I was able to take in all of these things and understand who I am and who we are above and beyond our traumas and our triggers. And I think for me, it was really reconstructing this idea of vulnerability, right? We were told, I was told growing up that vulnerability was weakness, but in reality, vulnerability is the personification of strength. And so I had to reshape and reshift that idea and stop abiding by this social construct that wasn't created by us, that is actually killing us and harming us, right? We're abiding by this, this idea um, of, of what it means to be a man in America that's fragmented because we don't abide by the same rules as dominant culture. We can't, and we didn't prior to us coming to this country. And so I think we need to reclaim that part of our truth while going through this process of healing. We need people to step up and say, it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to not work on that. And the more that we step up, the more that we talk about our mental health struggles, the easier it'll be for the younger generation to do it. And by the way, that's what the younger generation is doing. They're not talking about mental illness. They're talking about mental health. So basically, it's okay to break, but we don't want to stay uh, broken. Now, one of the things I want to get from, from you all is what are you doing right now in your own life to improve or help your own mental health? Because I think more people, when they hear what someone's actually doing in real time, in real life, that's going to help push them forward to address their own mental health. Everybody loves McDonald's fries. 
So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Health uh, concerns that they might have. I've been in therapy now for a little over two years. And, you know, I already started with practices like meditation and mindfulness, uh, yoga and, and, and juicing and eliminating. But then having therapy as someone who can help me to, to shape and shift some of the things that I may be thinking or feeling and can give me that aha moment that, oh, I never thought about it that way. Oh, so if, if I do this, then maybe this will shift and this will change, right? But the point is, we need people we can trust. And we have a deep-seated mistrust for the uh, medical industry or healthcare professionals because of, you know, our mistreatment in the past. I'm thinking specifically of the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. A lot of black men have an aversion from going to the doctor. All right, or seeking help, even just for physical ailments, let alone to have somebody digging into their brain, trying to figure out what's wrong with them, trying to have them uh, make sense of what's going on psychically. So, uh, you know, that's an impediment. But unfortunately, a lot of black men are not matriculating into universities and colleges and getting the advanced degrees such that they can actually be there to help service the population of black men. Uh, so, I mean, it's it's a a manifold problem as far as I'm concerned. Yes, I, I agree with the numbers here. Only five to 7% of clinical psychologists, for example, are black males and the numbers are even lower for black male uh, psychologists. So the people just aren't there. That implicit bias really means that um, perhaps many of the therapists who don't look like us and some who even look like us may not have the cultural sensitivity and the cultural competence. In other words, they can't relate to the pain that we bring into the office and instead may see it as some sort of a pathology or that there's uh, something wrong with the victim and then victimize the victim. So it is more important that we get more people of color in place to do the therapy, but with all therapists, regardless of color, that it is really incumbent upon them to get the training to be more culturally sensitive, competent, and have that cultural humility in order to understand our pain. Dr. Jeff, Green Gorilla, and Quentin Vinny, thank you all so much for joining us. We'll be right back. Money phone, take off the car loan, take off the flex and the white loss. Take off the weird ass jewelry. I'm going to take 10 steps, then I'm taking off top off. That is Kendrick Lamar, who has reason to celebrate this week. His Mr. Morale in the Big Steppers dropped at number one with this year's biggest first week debut. Welcome back. I'm Kennedy Rue, and Kendrick's new music is just one of the headlines jumpstarting this week's entertainment remix. I'm so sorry. Doja down for the summer. I don't smoke. The singer took to Twitter to inform her fans she had to cancel her summer tour due to a tonsil infection caused by her vaping habit. Sorry, I have to go. All right, it's party time. Bye, love you. So far, no word on how long her recuperation period will be or when her tour will resume. Baby boy Rocky is here. ASAP and Rihanna welcomed their bundle of joy last week. Mama Riri is said to be, quote, in awe of their son. It is no secret that leading up to delivery day, Rihanna was very excited and unapologetic about being pregnant. The Fenty Phenom defied fashion with her various looks to show off her beautiful belly, so congrats to them. It means who I am, 
Oh, wow, that just hit me hard just now. Queen of hip-hop soul adds another diamond to her crown as one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People. Fresh off the heels of her Billboard Music Icon Award, Mary J. Blige is among the Time Icons. My goal past the mirror and I say, good morning, gorgeous. It began to manifest in my heart, in my spirit, in my, in my inner body. Mary's fellow icons include Issa Rae and John Baptiste. Zendaya, who graces one of the multiple covers, is among the innovators, in part thanks to her boss lady status in fashion and behind the scenes of her HBO hit, Euphoria. I will definitely credit Euphoria to, I think, my interest, not only in directing, but also like more things behind the camera. The sisterhood of leading ladies also includes Oscar winner Ariana DeBose, Jasmine Sullivan, Quinta Brunson, and Oprah Winfrey. Let me tell you something, Rick Ross, AKA Rose, AKA Teflon Don, decided to bring a car expo here to the promised land. We're talking more than 200 acres, but it's not about the house today. It's about the first annual car and bike show. Naima was revving it up with Rick Ross on the ground with the Atlanta-based hip-hop activist who headlined the car show in Atlanta, spread out over 200 acres on Rick's estate, dubbed Promised Land. We're talking luxury cars. We're talking cars that pulled up all over the country to be here. The show brought out car enthusiasts, especially the Gen Z generation, among them popular YouTube personality, Desi. To be able to put my car in here, I got an 84 SS Monte Carlo. What's her name? Miss Pearly. Miss Pearly. Yeah, she looked like pearls. Does Miss Pearly stand out? Yeah, of course. Car life is a specialty for 19-year-old NASCAR driver Raja Karuth. I'm excited. I'm a car guy, obviously, since I race, and there's a couple stock car cars here. So to represent NASCAR at this event is awesome. And like I said, I'm a car guy, so seeing all these cool whips out here is amazing. Pop culture is a desert right now. <clears throat> And your show is an anomaly. <laughs> and brace yourself for Dave Chappelle Unleashed. The unapologetic funny man brings it to the table with Black Star and the guys holding down the drink champs. And no disrespect, <laughs> I laughed. Stay with us when we come back, our revolutionary of the week. I do it because I know firsthand what it feels like to live up toxic water, what it's like to not be able to take a bubble bath, what it is like to, what it's like seeing my baby sister get rashes that resemble chemical burns from the water coming out of our faucets. And I know what it's like when leadership on all levels fails you over and over again because people don't take elections seriously. strong words from 14-year-old Mari Kopany at the Billboard Music Awards, where she earned the Changemaker Award. What a moment for the Michigan teen who's been vocal about holding politicians accountable over the Flint, Michigan water crisis, which is still a battle. I was with Mari at the red carpet, where she learned she is our Revolutionary of the Week. How does it feel to be here today? Honestly, it feels very amazing to be here, because, like, honestly, I would never thought that I'd be here. Like, I'm just a 14-year-old kid from Flint, Michigan. Yeah. Who would have known? Well, if you don't know by now, it's clear Mari Kopany has always been destined for big things. How are you? Yeah. <laughs> Sweetie, how you doing? In 2016, the then eight-year-old became the most prominent water rights activist in the country, bringing national attention to the Flint water crisis. I would have been happy to see Mari in Washington. But when something like this happens, a young girl shouldn't have to go to Washington to be hurt. 
In the years since, Mari, known as Little Miss Flint, has continued to make meaningful change in her community. After giving out a million bottles of water, I had seen that people were, were not taking the bottled water seriously and they were littering and not recycling. And that was really bad for the environment. So I was like, let's do something that's way safer. Now I have my very own water filter and it filters out any lead bacteria or any toxic chemicals into the water. And while she continues to champion water justice, the young activist has expanded her work to other causes close to her heart raising nearly $600,000 for her Flint Kids project and distributed over 17,000 backpacks stocked with school supplies. When, when government priorities are misguided, we must speak out. There is no time to wait. I advocate for the kids across America because people who look like me always get the short end of the stick. on fighting Mari job well done well that does it for us Rochelle so good to have you here with us today we'll see everyone next time bye now Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.